Podcasting is nothing new to me, nor is writing, recording, performing, or talking about music. But podcasting about music is new. So thank you for joining me on this ride. And please don't hesitate to share feedback by leaving a review or sending me an email as I try and figure out what this show should be and sound like. This is the left side. This is the right side. My name's Dan Koch, and this is Pretty Good Vibrations, a show that both analyzes and celebrates pop and rock music and the crucial role it plays throughout our lives. As a podcaster, I'm known for my work around psychology and religion, most notably on the You Have Permission podcast, but I've actually been a professional musician for most of the last 20 years, first as the songwriter and guitarist for the emo pop band Sherwood, and then after that, about a decade as a commercial composer. So, today I'll be walking us through the genre of power pop chronologically, from its foundation in the 1960s all the way through bands carrying that same torch today. Joining me is John Van Dusen, solo artist and formerly of the Lonely Forest out of Anacortes, Washington. Thanks for listening. John Van Dusen, welcome to Pretty Good Vibrations. Thanks for joining me. Oh man, thanks. Thanks for having me. So I asked you, John, I wanted to try out one of these episodes where a guest picks a genre or an era or something like that, that they love. And then I do a little research and they come and they bring their knowledge and we kind of talk through a genre. I love that you picked power pop. And so pretty quickly here, we're going to have to get into sort of defining this, but just so people have some sense, like here are some of the bands and artists we will be talking about today in chronological order, Beatles, Kinks, Beach Boys, Birds, Bad Finger, The Raspberries, Tom Petty, The Jam, Buzzcocks, Cheap Trick, The Primitives, Teenage Fan Club, The Posies, Weezer, Foo Fighters, that's a surprise, Guided by Voices, Presence of the United States of America, Super Drag, Smoking Popes, Fountains of Wayne, Not a Surf, Saves the Day, maybe, if we get them in there, Big Star, <laughs> And then some of your music, Lonely Forest and John Van Dusen. Basically, Power Pop is bands that took the early mid-60s pop group formula, including a bunch of particular elements of it, updated it with louder and janglier guitars, and uh, but, but kind of stayed true to that top of the pops type thing, except usually a little bit less silly lyrics, essentially. And uh, we're going to sort of chart the rise and fall in the various sub waves of power pop through the years. We're going to stay as chronological as we can so that we get a sense of how this stuff develops over time. Okay. But I want to just like set the stage for your involvement here. Why did you pick power pop? Why is this the one you wanted to talk about? Power pop bands live in a, in in an intersection of music that I just really love. So I love the Beatles and the beach boys. I have a fondness for the kinks and the birds and the Who. I love songcraft. It's very important to me. Yeah. I also love simplicity. And I think power pop bands, they shed or at least never championed some of the kind of maximal maximalist aspects of classic rock that I hate. Mm-hmm. I love energy and volume in my music. And I also really love the punk ethic at large. And so because I think a lot of power pop bands probably just wanted to be punk bands, 
but their love for the Beatles was too strong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like that. It's it's it, they never quite dove headfirst into punk music, but there's always a little bit of a punk edge. Often the two lanes do appear to merge briefly or almost merge uh, yeah. at different times in the development of power pop, which is interesting too. You've got like some seventies punk in the eighties, you get a little more punk scratching up mm -hmm. against it. And then again later. So that's I mean, a fun factor to, to watch out for. That's why I like power pop. All those things kind of combined. Obviously I've made some music that some would call power pop. I've been trying to figure out how you divide and separate pop punk from power pop and pop rock from power pop. So like, it could be that we're beginning, it's semantics and we're really kind of getting into things that, that are just really closely related or even just the same thing. But that actually has baffled me. I was thinking about pop rock and when is pop rock not power pop? So anyways, those are the things I wanna explore and I'm really excited to talk about power pop. It's gonna get more complicated when we get to the 80s where there's kind of a break from uh, a pretty straight line of power pop out of the late 60s and through the 70s. And then in 1979, My Sharona by The Knack is the biggest selling single of the year. Right. And that, and people just sort of OD on power pop at that point. And then we, we <laughs> enter the medieval dark ages of power pop during the 1980s. And there sure. are, and then sort of a new thing emerges. So I'm, we'll get to that. Um, and then that's when it starts to get more complex because- the, the the DNA is harder to trace, basically, at that point. And a lot of it's in the eye of the beholder. But it's going to be a lot of fun along the way. So here are two very basic definitions of power pop. The first is from you via text message. Energetic, jangly, crunchy, and loud pop songs that draw influence from the Beatles, the Birds, the Monkees, and the Beach Boys. Something like that. End quote. <laughs> it's a pretty fucking good definition, John. Thank you. Here Thank is you. the like music critic from allmusic.com. Here's this guy's definition. Power pop is a cross between the crunching hard rock of the who and the sweet melodicism of the Beatles and beach boys with the ringing guitars of the birds thrown in for good measure. End quote. I mean, those are birds of a feather definitions of a feather. It's interesting because I, I get that. And like one of the reasons I love the who is because they kind of pave the way for punk bands, but they also have sweet melodicism. Like, all over their entire catalog, there are right. beautiful harmonies and hooks and 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 really beautiful uh, acoustic guitars and tambourines and all these things. So it feels like it does a disservice to the Who to just put them in a hard rock category. But I understand what they're saying. It's like so here. Let, we'll play the Who right now. They're early enough on in the in the sort of story here. This is I can't explain, which I believe is their first successful single. I could be wrong about that. It's it's a it's on my generation, or it might be right after my generation, and they they put it on that record. It's okay. very early on, and it's got some of that loud stuff going on, um, but it's not like Baba O'Reilly big power chords, the sort of proggier stuff that they that they flirt with later. Sure. All right, here's I can't explain. So you hear those jangly guitars, like, has there ever been a better adjective for an instrument than the word jangly applied to electric <laughs> guitar? It's such a perfect match 
of a word in the English language that matches an indescribable sonic quality. Yeah. Like, listen to these. Look, listen to this. Mr. Tambourine Man, the birds. Listen to these jangles. Don't they use the word jangle? Jangle, <laughs> jingle, jangle. Well, that's funny because it's actually, of course, it's a Bob Dylan song. So Bob Dylan is the one who comes up with the word jingle, jangle, morning. And then people hear the birds <laughs> and they go, jingle, jangle, morning. These are jingle, jangle guitars. These man. are jangle guitars. Yeah. I'm glad that they don't. I'm glad that everyone didn't keep the word jingle in there. Like imagine the the all music critic saying with the ringing or no that you said you said jangly energetic jingle jangly crunchy and loud pop yeah songs. jingle jangly <laughs> it's just not quite tough enough for power no. pop you know so that's the that's the era of the who we're talking about and there's a little birds for you even in the beginning the who had a had an edge i know the rolling stones are not in this conversation but i i like that about the stones as well there's an edge that i think the beatles had to um they kind of had to grow up to find. Yeah. And yeah, maybe they, they needed more like um, uh, turmoil in the ranks before they found their edge. Yeah, I could buy that for sure. So here's the Beatles. We're going to start with them. So this is 1963. This okay. is All My Loving from With the Beatles. And this is the kind of pop group, pop song, top of the charts template that all subsequent power pop sort of emerges from. Mm-hmm. Close your eyes and I'll kiss you Tomorrow I'll miss you Remember I'll always be true And then while I'm away I'll ride home every day And I'll send all my loving to you Oh man, the chord progressions and the melodies specifically like as we work through, even into, um, especially the nineties, people just wearing that Paul McCartney sense of melodicism on their sleeve. Yep. It's crazy. Cause I hear that and I instant, instantly get teleported to the posies and I instantly get teleported to super drag. And I think that's really exciting. I've actually never listened to the Beatles. And then, I mean, I've obviously made the connection mentally, but having them all kind of crunched together in my mind right now, it's almost like they could exist 10 years apart instead of like how many years that is. Well, here's That's crazy. Here's sucked out by super drag from 1996. This is 33 years later. If you changed the lyrics to be a little more candy, that could have been on the That Thing You Do soundtrack. Absolutely. It's like a day hasn't gone by in terms of songcraft there between those songs. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I love the kind of meta aspect of that song. 
singing about writing songs and melody. Like, what yeah. does he say? Look at me, I can write a melody, but I, what is it? Something about can't get a soul to care. Oh, oh John, I love that so much. John Davis, you did get some souls to care. You did. Okay, so <laughs> as we are tracing power pop from the beginning, a lot mm-hmm. of people talk about the birds and then the Beatles. So the you got the Beatles and then you got the birds playing around the same time. And so here's, I'll, uh, I'll feel a whole lot better. Okay. So this is that 12 string birds sound. So for mm-hmm. non-guitar players, most guitars are six strings, but you can get these 12 string guitars, both acoustic and electric. And basically most of the strings are two that are the same note, but they're an octave apart. And it causes this natural chorus sound, almost like a harp sort of a vibe. Were the Birds one of the first bands to kind of implement the 12 string on a regular basis? I don't know if they were first, but they are certainly one of the most popular early bands to do it. And especially the electric 12 string, they probably were basically the first. Yeah. I'm assuming a Rickenbacker. I don't really know. It's a Rickenbacker. I was going to get you're you're uh, scooping me here. So here's uh, it's okay. Here's I'll feel a lot. I'll feel a whole lot better. The reason why, oh, I can say, I can let you go, and right away, after what you did, I can't stay on, and I probably feel a whole lot better when you're Oh, it's so good. It's so good. And just to draw one more of these, it's as if time stops. Yeah. Here's 25 years later, Tom Petty on his biggest solo album, probably biggest album of any of his, Full Moon Fever. This is the Free Fallen album. The reason why, oh, I can say, I to let you go, so the birds are one of the sort of through lines, uh, you know, continuing to influence bands into the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. As the story goes, George Harrison falls in love with that 12-string sound. Mm -hmm. And then when the Beatles are writing Revolver, he works on And Your Bird Can Sing. This just, sorry, keep, I've, this, it's, my brain is exploding. Now I just want to hear Guided by Voices. But it's, it's amazing to me making a playlist like this because I can see through lines to so many bands. It's incredible. Yeah, that's really the story here. It is a through line. So we're going to wrap up the 60s now. So we, we have kind okay. of our basic bed. That's where it's coming from. And, and the way that the story is often told is the Beatles break up. Their last album is 1970. They signed Badfinger to Apple <laughs> Records, their oh, record they label. Did? Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah. So the next kind of player here is Badfinger. And the story is that 
um, a guy from some other famous band at the time saying when he heard Badfinger on the radio, he was convinced that it was the Beatles covertly reunited and releasing <laughs> pop singles like their earlier stuff. That tracks. So here's No Matter What by Badfinger, 1970, from the album No Dice. No matter what you do, I will always be around. Won't you tell me what you found out? Who now wants you? Knock down the old gray wall. I think what I'm realizing, John, is that Every single song we're going to play today should have Lennon McCartney added to the songwriting credits. <laughs> yeah, probably. Man, Badfinger is a band I don't know a lot about. Same. But I absolutely feel like I need to go buy, you know, their essential album on vinyl now. Oh, just spin it. Yeah. Yeah. Badfinger is definitely one that is has stuck out to me in prepping for this episode. And I didn't know that they were like on Apple Records. So there's a direct lineage there. What happened to them? Like why? Because they don't live in my mind as a like, you know, some colossus of rock and roll. But should they? Like, is that due to my, you know, being born in 1987? Or is that because they kind of had a moment that was quickly over? They had four consecutive worldwide hits from 70 to 72. Wow. And they sold 14 million albums. So yeah, I think, it's, I think it's just our age. <laughs> okay. That's a <laughs> fucking huge band. That's insane. Yeah. I had no idea. Well, and this is actually applicable. So power pop, it, it is the Rodney Dangerfield, right? It doesn't get the respect. Like there's no reason to discount that song. That's a great rock and roll song. Yeah. But maybe from the, but we might go, well, it's not David Bowie. If you found a Bowie song that was approximately as good as No Matter What by Badfinger, right. like people are going to want to talk about Bowie more because it reflects better on them. Or like Zeppelin, you know, 69 to 74, that's sort of the Zeppelin heyday, the first four mm -hmm. records. And that's where the zeitgeist went. I mean, the people were kind of tired of the early Beatles stuff, you know? People wanted wank. They wanted what? Wank. wank. Like on the guitar? <laughs> Yeah, and, and everything <laughs> on the bass, the drums, the vocals. Are you kidding? If that's the era of Led are you Zeppelin? making a? Is this a masturbation joke, John? Kinda. They wanted wank. They they wanted they wanted guitar players who were flashy in soloing. They wanted right. They wanted something excessive because it was exciting. Now Bowie might be excessive in another way, like in his his image and his artistry, which yeah. I would actually argue is way better and more awesome, but. I do think, um, you know, the seventies roll around and people are pretty excited about classic rock. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, they're not calling it classic rock at that point. Yeah. What well, was hard rock? Yeah. Um, whatever it was. I mean, it was just probably rock is probably what they thought, you know, this, these yeah. are just the new rock bands. Mm -hmm. So fast forward 1972, this is kind of the band that, um, a lot of people credit with sort of really getting the seventies power pop movement going. This is a band called the raspberries. I believe they're from Pennsylvania, um, East Coast or Eastern U.S. This is Go All the Way, 1972. 
I don't know a lot about the Raspberries. I've obviously heard that song on classic rock radio stations for a long time. I don't love it. Uh, that's that's my thought on it. I think it's a little too sweet. Now, is all of their music that way? Because I've I've heard other songs that were maybe a little bit more energetic. Let's see. Here's their next most popular song. It's called I Want to Be With You, also from 1972, but a okay. different record. Hell yeah. It's got the guitars, it's got the McCartney, you know, the Beatles um, chord progressions and melodies. It's got all of the beautiful background vocals, which immediately pushed me towards like the Cars and all those bands where they started doing those like heavily layered, yeah, probably doubled, tripled, quadrupled vocals, yeah, which feels very 70s to me. So that, that actually makes way more sense than Go All The Way or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like the production more on I Want To Be With You too. It's pushed a little harder. It's got a little bit more of that edge. It's from a mm-hmm. songwriting perspective though, it's still pretty sweet, pretty candy. Not a lot of edge. It feels like we're gonna start talking about how the 70s had a power pop thing that was a little sweet and 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 had a candy sheen to it. And I'm wondering if that's where some of the other bands that still listened to the Beatles and stuff, they started living into their punk ethic a little bit more. Yeah. You could argue that the Clash or the Buzzcocks or like some of the like kind of quintessential punk bands still kind of wear the Beatles on their sleeve. Maybe the mm-hmm. Clash a little less, but like... The second thought I had about that first Raspberry song, Go All The Way, is that it's it's actually kind of like a 75% ripoff of She Knows Me Too Well by the Beach Boys. Just a refresher here. Just, just a little refresher. For sure. Even that chord right there. I mean, that's that is like again. Let's give Brian Wilson a, a co-writing credit on the sleeve there. Yeah. Raspberries. You know, thank you. There's an American thing here. Now we're we're talking about mm. like if a power pop band leans heavier on the British invasion, or if they lean into, I guess the Beach Boys. Like, yeah, I like that. Is there's a like a a, a difference there in um, sound and because the Beach Boys are a sweet band and like while the Beatles can be sweet there was I don't know maybe just a little bit more edginess to the British Invasion and I mean I don't know what other like what other American bands other than the Beach Boys are we talking about here that would like fit into the category of like influencing power pop are there any well the birds are from LA oh they are yeah that's crazy in my mind I just like place them with like the kinks no they're like you know Sunset Strip mm. Laurel Canyon Right, David Crosby leaves and starts Crosby, Stills and Nash. Oh, of course, yeah. So, I, see, I had never made that connection. You've already wow. you've already got that sort of bi-coastal thing. You know, the the Raspberries founding member guy, he's quoted as saying, "I wanted a band that could rock like the Who, but sing like the Beatles and the Beach Boys." Well, he certainly accomplished it. Yes, <laughs> he's got a little too close to the Beach Boys on that one song. Yeah, that's hilarious. 
I'm agreeing with you that like some of that raspberry stuff, I actually, I liked that second track a lot and added it to a, a playlist of mine while we were listening, <laughs> but we get a few years later, 1976, the nerves, they have mm -hmm. a track called hanging on the telephone. And here's where some of that grit, some of what's in the air with early punk, I think is making its way in. This yeah. is the same year as the Ramones self-titled. The Ramones, who, who someone could probably argue is uh, power pop. Yeah, if they weren't so obviously punk rock, like they would be in this conversation. Maybe if not, maybe if punk hadn't become such a big thing, you could sure. have classified the Ramones as like a particularly simplistic version of this. But their absolute love for Phil Spector, Beach Boys, Beatles, and all that stuff is. I mean, it's not on their sleeve. It might as well be in that Ramones logo. They wear yeah. it so clearly on, on their whole shirt. I've never heard the nerves. Yeah, you're going to dig this track. Okay. Let's... Hanging on the telephone, All right, what, what's the over-under that Paul Westerberg from The Replacements was a Nerves fan? <laughs> I, I literally was just pulling up The Replacements on um, on my phone because that's what I instantly thought of. Yeah. Man. Yeah. But this I is like 76. So this is before any of oh, yeah. The Replacements. It's like before they even did their weird uh, like hardcore punk early phase as a band. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a cool track. I like that a lot. I've definitely heard it. Man. Yeah. There's a coolness to that. Yeah. That the raspberries do not have. 100%. The nerves don't care. The raspberries care. That's how it feels. Just listening to them side by side. Now, yeah, it's probably not totally fair, but. Well, you can't psychoanalyze someone from just a single recording of one track that they wrote. But sure. the aesthetic, you're, you're picking up on something that is very clearly there, whether intentional or not, um, between those bands. happen to work in advertising or perhaps video production of some kind? If so, I'd love it if you checked out my music licensing library. All the bumper music for this show, including the theme music and the track you're hearing right now, are in that library available for licensing. And every track is customizable for big enough projects. You can hear all my tracks sorted by genre and vibe at dancoke.net. There's a link in the show notes as well. Thanks for taking a listen. So let's stick with this punk thing. So that was 76. Here's 1977. Here's the jam over oh, in yeah. the UK in the city. I know the jam as an early punk band, even though they really only stayed a punk band for one album, but that was how I found them and was introduced to them as like, okay, if you go all the way back to the seventies, here are some gems that like aren't as famous in America as the sex pistols. It's cool to hear that song in the power pop context because I yes. hear the Lennon McCartney in there. 
in a way that I wasn't listening for when I was thinking of them as, oh, part of the jam, the clash, the Ramones, you know, the early group of punk bands, the Sex Pistols. Yeah, I I discovered the jam when kind of digging into what would have been influencing um, bands like Green Day. Yeah, Green Day was hugely influenced by the jam. I, I will admit I've mostly just lived – oh, that that very record. I've mostly just lived on their best of, yeah. which I realize isn't very cool. Um, That's fine. <laughs> Who cares? I, I do really love it. I feel like I need to play another jam song because they're so underrated. Have you listened to – or That's Entertainment? Such a good song. But, uh, but, but like sticking with something a little bit more in this vein because that's primarily an acoustic-based track and it's yes, a it great is. one. This is, this is Going Underground. Okay. Um, this is, oh my gosh, such a cool song. Yeah, if you want to check the jam out, there are a number of kind of best ofs. Um, Snap, the very best of the jam. They're all great. Like any of those are a great place to start. They they had a very wide career. They were massive in England and just never really broke here. It, it's a very British sound, I think. Let's talk about the Buzzcocks. So they are often also named in this sort of first generation of British punk bands. Uh, the Jam, the Sex Pistols, the Clash, the Buzzcocks, Stiff Little Fingers, that's often kind of your top five. Um, and But the Buzzcocks, it's another band that's fun to listen through this power pop lens rather than the punk rock lens. So here's Ever Fallen in Love, 1978. And if I start a commotion, I run the risk of losing you, that's worse. Jangly guitars. Ever fallen in love with someone, ever fallen in love, in love with someone, ever fallen in love, in love with someone you should have fallen in love with. My Buzzcocks story, by the way, is that we were playing, Sherwood was playing a festival in Tokyo called Punk Spring, the one time we went to Japan. And it was this big, mostly punk festival, and the Buzzcocks were there, and Rancid and No Effects. Nate, the singer of Sherwood, I actually had missed my flight, so I was late. I came uh, later. But he was having dinner or whatever, and it was Fat Mike and Tim Armstrong from Rancid uh, and the Buzzcocks singer. And the Buzzcocks guys, like, to Fat Mike, hey, what's the name of your band? And Mike's like, no effects. And he's like, all right, I have to look that up. (laughs) And Nate told me this story. Like, can you imagine being around Fat Mike from No Effects with like the legendary early punk band that you've never heard of No Effects? I thought that was so punk that he just like, oh, yeah, I don't even know who you guys are. I probably will have like a proper Buzzcocks phase at one point in my life. Yeah. But like there is a sadness to it that um, really gets me. Like it feels... The, obviously, the pop song craft with like the punk energy yeah. is just the best. I love it so much. But yeah, there's a, there's a sadness to it. I don't how, know how, how else to say it. Let's lean um, into that sadness. This is my favorite Buzzcock song. It's called What Do I Get? I just want to love like any other. What do I get? I only want to bend the state to the end. What do I get? What do I get? Oh, what do I get? 
I mean, that's just straight up longing right there. I mean, that's I know that's not a bit of a, a bit of sadness. That's just sadness. It is, and it's but it's catchy and it's poppy and it's major chords. You know, I love it. Yeah, I think that the kind of like struggle with sexuality mm-hmm. lends a very real like emotional weight to those songs. And like, I don't know why that hits me so much harder than um, some of these other bands were talking about. Like, I think you sent me a definition of power pop that, in, that had something to do with lyrics. Do you remember this? Emotionally attuned to the hunger of teenage angst. This is from the essentials power pop playlist from Apple music. Yeah. And I, I think I would need this person to break that down for me a little bit because I don't like boxing power pop into that yeah. definition. Cause like the buzz, that doesn't feel like teenage angst to me. It feels like a more um, like existential angst, like, like for mm. real dread, like deep down in the soul dread that like yeah. doesn't feel like a teenage angst to me. And I don't know. I think that's why I like it. So. Yeah, for sure. So now we are going to reach what we might call the the mountain peak of power pop in the late 70s. This is where it yeah. gets truly <laughs> massive and then everyone kind of gets sick of it and then there's a hangover for a while. So mm-hmm. we're talking about Cheap Trick, The Knack, and The Romantics. Here's Cheap Trick with Surrender. a little bit of prog in there it's kind of you know it's it's almost like it's a little bit losing the plot of of where it came from and and broadening out but those eh, at the end that's actually one thing we forgot to bring up is a lot of these bands will do the the na-na-nas the sha-la-las the non-lyric vocals from those 60s pop groups that's one of the through lines you find in in each decade Mm mm-hmm I want to run through these three tracks and then we kind of talk about them as a whole. So okay. here's The Romantics, What I Like About You, 1979. That song slays. It's so good. 1979, the word that comes to mind for me in that context is escapism. This is like the end of like the most tumultuous U.S. decade in a long time. Mm -hmm. Economic despair. Vietnam goes halfway through the decade. Watergate and all this crumbling of institutional trust. And that song sounds like. You know, the the Ed Sullivan show, 1964 or whatever. Make power pop great again. Yes. <laughs> okay, and here's my Sharona, The Knack. This is the song that really broke the fever uh, sure. in most of the accounts. The Knacker, uh, so, I mean, obviously I've heard that song. I think that song is incredible. I can just picture the A&R agent and the record executive in LA hearing that and just losing their mind. It's just so 
good. And The Knack are a band that, as I've like explored that record specifically, they were so good. Like their music, their musicianship and their chops were like off the charts. Yeah. And it actually makes me, this is terrible and not fair. I like them less because of it. <laughs> that is not fair. It's not fair at mm. all. Like they don't care what I think, Yeah. but I've realized it's just not, it's not rough around the edges the way I want it to be. It's so yeah. precise, so good. And I'm sure if I saw them live in that era at, in, you know, in LA or something, I would have lost my mind. I would be like, this band is so good. But yeah. it, that whole record is just so, pers- it's so perfect. Have you spent any time with it? Get the Knack, that record? Yeah. I've seen it. I've seen it in every single record store I've ever looked for records in. Yeah. But no, I've never, I've never really given it any time. I probably try, should. Try, go, can you go to their, um, yeah. can you go to that record? Yep. Maybe like the first song on the record, Let Me Out. Let's hear it. What I'm hearing here is like a band that's like, hey, let's take 85% of what these punk bands are doing, uh, but let's clean it up and get it ready for the radio. Sure. And that's a great song. Like, I, I can't deny how good that, that it's a cool track. track is. Yeah. So what happens in the 80s is we have this backlash to My Sharona and the Romantics and uh, the the massive worldwide success of those songs. And what you end up getting is the the guys who are really into that classic pop songwriting, they go more the way of the cars. So you basically lose the jangly guitars. You mm-hmm. keep the pop song craft. You keep the hookiness. You've got plenty of pop rock in the 80s, but it sounds more like this. Here's My Best Friend's Girl by the Cars. Here she comes again. Those are those layered background vocals you're talking about earlier. It almost sounds like Def Leppard, like a Mutt Lang production, you know, just these huge, thick stacks of vocals. Yes, it's a thing. The Cars are a band I respect immensely because you see their fingerprints as we go on. But I can't say it's like I like them and I don't but I don't love them. And I think some of it is just the classic rock, um, some of their classic rock tendencies. I don't really know how else to say it. So I almost didn't even include the cars because they really aren't quite doing a power pop thing. But the thing that matters is that Rick Ocasek, yes, singer, songwriter of the cars, producer of a bunch of their own records, becomes a major player in the 90s and later resurgence of power pop. When some younger guys are ready to start picking up those jangly or sometimes just more distorted guitars yes, and get that going. But there are a couple little spots in the late 80s that are worth noting. So here's the primitives Mm -hmm. with Crash 1988. Okay. 
that guitar part right there. Yeah. I like this a lot. So they've got the jangly guitars. There's a 12 string in there, I think. They got the na-na-nas, right? They're definitely, they're carrying the flag. Yeah, I like that. I'd never heard that. The primitives are like, uh, <laughs> here's my own background coming out in this joke. The primitives are like the Muslim scholars who kept Aristotle alive during the European Dark Ages. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Without knowing a lot about this era of music, it feels like there's probably some other bands that we're just not talking about that would fall into the primitives world a little bit. There probably are some. I feel like I've heard that song, but not that song on like five different 80s movies is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, but none of them, mostly they don't have big success. And the way that people generally chart this is that it, it, it doesn't happen until the 90s. So let's skip to the 90s. Now, this is 1991. This is the year of Nevermind. But Teenage Fan Club says, who cares? We don't need grunge. We are not going to try and uh, jump on that bandwagon. We're going straight back to the early 60s. <laughs> and they put out a record called Bandwagon-esque that is absolutely iconic in the 90s reemergence of power pop. This is Alcoholiday. Oh my gosh. They're so good. It's so good. Bandwagon-esque. Like, I don't have time to <laughs> to move on from Bandwagon-esque yet. <laughs> You're not ready to move on. You want to hear another song from it? Yes, I do. <laughs> okay. Let's let's hear what you do to me oh, okay. from the same record, Bandwagon-esque 1991. Okay. I'm probably going to ask you to play another one. This is terrible. <laughs> hey, you know what? It. Well, this record is really important. And I think that what I'm hearing already is this is like a Gen X take on... The 60s. It's a little more cynical. It's a little more kind of rebellious, but the DNA is unmistakable. And uh, guitar tone is starting to change. Yes. It's starting to get more 90s grungy alternative rock. Yep. I think we could probably have a whole nother episode um, tracing the evolution of guitar uh, pedals Oh, and their, their influence on power pop, but also just rock and roll in general. Because I feel like we're starting like... You know, 89, 90, 91, there are different types of distortion pedals at play. At least, I don't know if they've been around for a long time or not, but I do know that the kids are beginning to find them and plug their guitars into them. Because, like, that just sounds different. Yeah, that's a great... I had not considered that at all. There's a gear angle here. I, I try not to do, like, gear corner too much on this show because... You know, there's a very limited audience for like the difference between a big muff and a rat and a boss distortion pedal or whatever. But sure, you're right. That technology is exploding around this time. Obviously, punk bands have been like turning their amps up and playing distorted guitars for a long time. Like even Def Leppard and like some of the big like hair metal yeah. or I mean, yeah, metal, metal bands are, are metal bands figuring out distortion. And, you know, maybe Mesa Boogie puts out their amps like a little bit later than the Marshall and. You've got more options, but yeah, that's a cool angle. So here's a, well, what's the song you want to hear from Bandwagon S? Let's hear that song. It's not, the thing is, it's not necessarily power pop, but I mean, I guess the whole record is December. 
I love this song so much. It's it's just not maybe it doesn't fit in the show quite as well. But well, let's um, just play let's just play a little December. <sighs> I just love it so much. I love it so much. <laughs> you get it. Yeah, so I mean, there's definitely some of that, you know, Beatles, Beach Boys. It's not as upbeat, so it's not as obvious. But you yes. can, that record is power pop through and through. And I think is pretty much credited with sort of reigniting this whole thing, which interestingly is going against the flow of grunge, uh, which is really the dominant form of rock music in the early 90s. So it's fun to kind of think about these bands as basically counter-programming, right? It, it, it is really interesting. And I think even grunge itself, obviously having bands that are drawing more from punk or more from Led Zeppelin, you know, like in Mudhoney's case, like the Stooges or whatever. And I think... Like grunge is just kind of a terrible word. Yeah. It's just kind of a terrible word. Because there are probably people at this point who would have said that like, that's kind of grungy. It's kind of, they could have shared the stage with like Nirvana and Pavement and like another band and it wouldn't have been weird. Yeah. I think that's probably right. Maybe not Alice in Chains. (laughs) Right. Like that's because that's almost metal. Like that's, that's a grunge band, like the heaviest grunge band of all time. Right. Right. You're kind of, I think that's why grunge is such an interesting um, catch all. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's just a, it's a whole other thing. Who are you going to do grunge with? I want to know who you do, who you will do the grunge episode with. I can't wait. You know, hey, I'm accepting applications for the grunge episode. That's it for part one of the Power Pop episode. Please join me and John next week for part two. And if you're enjoying this episode or this show, it's a brand new show, so please share it with some friends who you think might also love it. Appreciate it. <laughs>